So as I said this morning, we are continuing on in the parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, um, verses 1 through 13. And this evening we're going to look at the wise virgins in the parable. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel, and let's read that um, parable again. Then the kingdom of heaven, said our Lord, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour." So this morning, we looked fairly closely at the five foolish virgins and what that allegory in this parable by the Lord Jesus means. And tonight, as I said, we're going to look at the wise virgins, the five wise virgins, and what that means. Look to your right and your left, and you'll see the wise <laughs> The others, I don't know where they're at. Maybe, I don't know, there's some sort of sporting event going on. <laughs> Honestly, when I, when, I, um, when I was led to write this, I didn't realize I'd be preaching on Super Bowl Sunday. And I'd been in churches where that was kind of like, you know, um, that wasn't a very good thing to, to get the assignment to preach on Super Bowl because no one would be there. <clears throat> So, um, and then when I decided this, I can't, I can't do this parable justice in, in just one sermon. I could break it into two because Pastor Steve's going to be gone. He's on vacation and I'm going to cover both services. It's perfect. I'll just divide this in two. Not realizing that the part on the foolish virgins and the wise virgins, you know, would, would be at Super Bowl time and that the, you know, I'd be talking... Well, I know I'm going to be preaching to the choir anyway, so, um, you know, <laughs> you get my point. It's my, my little uh, mic drop moment. <clears throat> I could end the sermon right now. Okay, so, recall, we noted the timing of this teaching. This parable was on the Mount of Olives. It was in the Olivet Discourse at near the very end of our Lord's earthly ministry. It was two days before Jesus' final Passover that he would celebrate in Jerusalem. 
when he will be presented as the spotless lamb in order that God's faithful people will be passed over on that great day of wrath, the day of judgment. Of course, the disciples, even the inner band, seemed oblivious to this. But when we read the Gospels, we see this often, don't we? That they, these, these, these disciples just don't seem to get it, even, even those that are closest to the Lord. And, and regardless of how many times the Lord speaks of the necessity of his death and what will come of his death, the disciples miss the point again and again. And we can easily, you know, be left wondering and scratching our head. But, but Luke reports to us the reason for this. And I think it's, it's informative for us to understand as, we, as we're examining this teaching of the, the ten virgins and how the, uh, the, the closest disciples to the Lord may have perceived it, may not have perceived it, but how that perception changed and changed in such a powerful way. So Luke, in his gospel, he tells us about when the Lord Jesus and Simon Peter and John and his brother James are up on a mountain. They're on the mountain of transfiguration. And in Matthew's gospel, that would be the fifth mountain. Recall the seven mountains that are in Matthew's gospel. So this is the time right before the Olivet Discourse, which is the sixth mountain of Matthew's. So they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and immediately they're met by a crowd. You, you may recall that they see this crowd gathered around a father and a, and a boy. And the father comes to Jesus and tells him this, this horrible story about his son, this little boy being demonized and that he brought the little boy to the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth because he heard that they could actually cast out demons, that they could heal the demonized, whereas other Jewish exorcists were basically charlatans that would take your money and you know, do incantations and whatever that were basically worthless. And he finds that these disciples cannot cast out the demon. So immediately, Jesus heals this demonized boy whom the disciples could not. And Luke tells us in chapter 9 of his gospel, verses 43 through 45, that all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples... Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Could you imagine that? Lord Jesus turning to you and saying, let this sink into your ears. Boy, I would be certainly paying attention then, wouldn't you? Everybody else is distracted of what's going on because this boy has been freed of the demons. And this is the time where, where the Lord turns to his closest men and tells them this. And Luke explains to us, but they did not understand the saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not 
perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Father, in his infinite wisdom, chose that these things would not be clear to these men who spent three years with God the Son incarnate. And Luke drives home this point. Because immediately after, when he talks about the truth of the Lord's statements being concealed from the disciples and them not understanding the magnitude of what had been revealed, Luke then says in the very next verse, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The Lord tells them this. Let this sink into your ears. They're going to take me and they're going to kill me. And the next moment, these guys are arguing about which of them is better than the other. That's the sinfulness of human nature. But, but, but the point, you see the point Luke is making? Is that these, these guys are, are totally, it's totally concealed from them. It didn't even register to them. Even when the Lord said, let this sink into your ears. They're distracted by petty squabbling. So even the faithful disciples, before the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but after the Lord's resurrection and, the, and then the, the coming, they, they hear the words of the Lord with, with veiled minds, so to speak. So they're hearing of this parable of the ten virgins at this time in particular, with, coupled with what they've experienced since their return to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as we call it, this parable still would have brought to their mind the coming of Yahweh, the great and terrible day of the Lord that so many of the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures talk about. And of course, this is correct. They're, they're correct in if they made this connection. But they did not grasp exactly whom their teacher was. Not yet. The visible Yahweh incarnate, they, they did not realize. This had been concealed from them, according to Luke. We must ask, I think, then, would they have been surprised by the division of, of the virgins? Out of the ten, only five of them were wise. Perhaps, but then perhaps not. They themselves had witnessed during this time they had been with the Lord, other followers of Jesus swell, you know, the swelling rapidly at times where there's hundreds of followers, and then suddenly they're gone. And the followers of the Lord shrink to just this small band. So maybe they wouldn't have been surprised. And since their return to Jerusalem with their master, they witnessed confrontation after confrontation with the Jewish authorities, who one would think out of all the Jews, being that they were the religious experts, they were the high priests, they were the scribes, they were the religious lawyers who knew the law inside and out and could argue over every jot and tittle, they should have recognized the truth in Jesus' teaching. You'd think they would have. 
after Jesus' betrayal by one of their own in the inner band, then his crucifixion on false charges, and the disciples, the, 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 the inner band, their own scattering and hiding in fear from the authorities, the teaching about these ten virgins undoubtedly took on a new light. We could well imagine that in this time period when these men who will become the apostles are in hiding, that they're thinking back on these three years that they've spent with the Lord Jesus. They're thinking back on his teachings and they're examining them in their head. It's like, okay, what is happening? Why is it happening? Did I misunderstand something? What went wrong? I'm confused. Did they think about this teaching? And then undoubtedly, this takes on a new light, particularly with the resurrection, Christ's ascension into heaven, and then the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had witnessed and experienced themselves, their own selves, the fickleness of the human spirit. Then the amazing, and there's just not enough superlatives here to, to describe it, but to, but to use the word often used in, in our own Bibles when people are amazed at what Christ does, the amazing salvation brought by the Lord and the grace then which totally changed these men these 11 men and then the one that by the casting of the lots was brought in to bring them back up to 12. The grace that had totally changed them. And they were now, after having been chosen by the Father, set apart and prepared by the Son, then transformed by the Spirit, they were the first, I would say, of the wise virgins awaiting the coming of the bridegroom, because at this point in time, they realize who the bridegroom is. The Old Testament idea, in more general sense, of Yahweh coming for Israel, Yahweh being often referred to by some of the prophets as the husband of Israel, they now realize that the bridegroom is the man that they followed for three years, that it is Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, who will be returning. And undoubtedly they're recalling all of these times when he said, this is what's going to happen. And very quickly, as we read in our Bibles, in the book of Acts, very quickly, others would join them in Christ's church. Other wise virgins as well as the foolish virgins. <clears throat> so this example that I'm giving you of Christ's apostles as wise virg virgins may be daunting for us. I think few in their right mind that have a proper understanding of Scripture would dare to compare themselves with these men. Yet they are proper examples, even though they, they seem to set the bar high for us because we have a before and after picture of how God granted them wisdom. We can see in this before and after picture that they were not very wise often 
during these three years when they followed Jesus and his itinerant preaching mission through Galilee and, and Perea and, and Judea. They were, they were very foolish at times. So this brings me to my first point that I want to make this evening. Point number one is biblical wisdom is not worldly wisdom. Biblical wisdom is not worldly wisdom. Wisdom, <clears throat> excuse me. So the wise virgins, these five wise virgins of the parable, obviously were not scholars. They were not sages. They were wise in the sense by which the Old Testament describes wisdom, which is very different from how we describe wisdom, I would say, at least outside of the church. So the Hebrew scriptures give us three kinds of people in this regard. The foolish, the simple, and the wise. And we see these divisions clearly in the genre of the Old Testament that's known as wisdom literature, particularly the books of, of uh, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then also the Psalms. In fact, the main contrasting theme in the book of Proverbs is the way of the wise in contrast to the way of the fool. If you read the book of Proverbs with this in your mind, like, well, okay, how, how does the Lord reveal the wise to the writers of the Proverbs, and how did he, how did he describe the fool? You would, you would come away after reading that book with a very, very clear and good understanding of what this meant biblically speaking, to the, the ancient Jews. <clears throat> so, like I said, these, these terms, we use them today in a different sense. So we really need to lay out the definition of, of what they mean. And the, first we'll start with the foolish. The foolish are described as those who hate wisdom and instruction. They refuse to be taught and do not respond to God's discipline. They are reckless and arrogant. They speak impulsively and are argumentative. And there's also a moral aspect to the state of being a fool. If we think about Job, when Job suffered all the traumas that he went through, what his wife said to him, curse God and die. And Job said, you are amongst the foolish women to say such a thing. The fool prefers evil. He rejects repentance, choosing instead to repeat his folly over and over again. He's caught in a vicious cycle of foolishness. Not surprisingly, fools reject God in their heart. And the traits of the scoffer, who's the person called the scoffer, we know that's someone that just you know, we deal with them all the time in our culture when we're speaking to them of our faith. They scoff at it. The scoffer closely follows, trait-wise, that of the fool. Then we have this group called the simple. <clears throat> now, it's very different from what we call the simple. We might, we might be speaking of the simple-minded, someone that doesn't grasp ideas very well, um, that sort of thing. So, in a sense, it's the same, but the simple biblically speaking, in the Old Testament, are those who are naive and, and gullible. And they seem to lack sense and fall easily into temptation. So that, that really describes many of us in, at some point um, in our life. 
They are often oblivious and, and ignorant of things. But, but unlike the fool, here's the big difference, is the simple are said to be able to learn and will respond to God's discipline. The simple can very easily become the wise. The fool, that's a little bit of a different story. So now we come to the wise. <clears throat> the, 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 the group that is our real focus tonight. They are open, very open to discipline and instruction. And they avoid acting recklessly or out of anger. The wise listen to advice. They listen to instruction. And they l even listen to rebukes. And it's even said that they love the rebuke, because it makes them wiser. Of course, when we think of this, a person that, that not only accepts those things, but is, is said to really covet them and love them, has humility. They are, uh, the wise are humble, and they are obedient. They're obedient to God's commands. And most importantly, the most important trait is the wise alone out of this group of the, the fools and the simple. They alone are the ones who fear the Lord. Which we know from the book of Proverbs and the Psalms that that is the fear of the Lord is the starting point for wisdom. And righteousness in the Old Testament is closely paralleled with wisdom. So we would expect to find these traits of the Old Testament wise in those made righteous in Christ by his blood. That's important to understand because that brings this Old Testament concept of the wise into the New Testament and makes it um, uh, part of or um, appropriate to this, this parable. That, that, uh, that the wise virgins, of course, are in the church, so they are made righteous by Christ's blood. There is a difference, though, that we must recognize. In the Old Testament, as I said, the, the, the simple can become wise, but there aren't really good examples of the foolish becoming wise. However, what do we have in the New Testament? We have a transformative aspect of what Christ has done, what the triune God has done through the work on the cross for us that can transform even the fool into the wise. Apart from that, many of us would be stuck in fooldom. Me, probably as much as anyone As I was preparing the sermon, this idea of someone being foolish and then becoming wise reminded me of an incident when I was working my first career. And at the time I was assigned uh, to a plain clothes detail. We were, uh, we, were, we were working major crimes. And we had various assignments. Most of the time we were in plain clothes, but we weren't undercover. Um, so, I was working day watch with my partner. We go to work, we get our gear, we do all the, the administrative stuff. We go out, we get in our uh, 
Um, we called it a TAC car. It was a plainclothes um, car. And like I said, we weren't undercover, so we had you know, our sidearms and our badges and our extra ammo strapped you know, to our waist, but we got to wear Levi's and T-shirts. And I get in the car. It's my turn to drive. My partner, Jim, gets in. And I look at him. I said, Jim, where's your gun? And he'd thrown his, his duty bag in the back seat. He says, it's in the bag. I said, put it on. He said, nah, we're working day watch, man. Nothing's going to happen. I don't need it. I said, Jim, seriously, <laughs> put your gun on. He goes, no, I don't need it, Ken. If I, if I need it, I can get it out of the bag. I said, Jim, you got to be kidding me. I, knew, I want you to put, put your gun on. He goes, nah. I said, okay. And I fired up the car, left the, the station. I headed south to the worst area in town that we had. And I went to the worst house in the worst area of town. This house that was, that was um, this family lived there that were known bad guys. The front of their house looked like it was out of a World War II movie scene. It was pockmarked with bullet holes. Drive-by shootings occurred there all the time. They did drive-bys, even on our police station. We were shot up by them. I parked right in front of their house, and I threw, threw the, the gear shift lever into park. And my partner's like, Ken, get out of here. And he's ducking down. He's like, get out of here. What are you doing? You're crazy. I said, Jim, I'm not leaving until you put your gun on. And he goes, I promise I'll put it on. I said, no, Jim, I'm not leaving until you put your gun on. So he reaches in the back, gets his bag, and he's, you know, gets his, his gun on, and he gets his, his strap on. That's fine. I put it in gear, and we leave. My partner was foolish. He was not willing to be prepared for what we might need to do that day. I brought him for a time into a place of wisdom where he understood that because I took him to a place where we could very easily need our weapons, you know, in the next moment. So not that he stayed wise, not that I was that great of a teacher, but, but that's, that's how sometimes the, the foolish are brought by the Lord maybe into the sense of being wise. So we need to ask what differentiates the wise here in the parable of the ten virgins. What in the parable makes them different from the foolish? And we can see in this parable, Jesus is projecting a time in the future, isn't he? Although exactly when the coming of the bridegroom, his return, will take place is not known, as we discussed this morning. So the visible church at this point is basically the faithful disciples around him on the Mount of Olives, is going to grow in knowledge by the Lord's preparing them, these men, during the 40-day period, after the resurrection and until the ascension. It's a time of intense teaching and training, and these men are going to learn a lot and in verse 1, we're told all of, the ten, all of the ten virgins took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. But the bridegroom was delayed in verse 5. So at the beginning, we see all the virgins expected to meet the bridegroom immediately. And initially, at that, that very first verse, there's no difference in the ten virgins. There are just ten virgins. Then we are told that only five of them are wise. 
And as we examined this morning, as we saw, the difference between the five wise and the five foolish is the oil for their lamps. This brings us to the second point. The wise virgins realize that their path needs to be illuminated. The wise virgins realize that their path needs to be illuminated. All ten virgins have their lamps or torches, which if you recall from this morning, are just those sticks with the cloth bundled on the end, easily made at home by each virgin. However, the oil that is necessary for these torches to be lit, to be lamps that that last more than just a quick burning of the cloth, come from, according to the parable, from oil dealers. In other words, the oil is not supplied by the virgins. The 119th Psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible, and in fact, the longest chapter, but it's not really a chapter, it's a psalm, but you know, it's hard to differentiate. It would be the longest chapter if it was just a chapter in the Bible. Presents two ways, and only two ways, by which we can live, by following the way of the Lord God, or by following the way of wickedness. This encapsulates, this gives us an idea um, in, a, in, a, in a shorter piece of writing exactly what wisdom literature wants to teach us. It's that very thing. The most striking feature, I would say, of the 119th Psalm is that each verse of that psalm refers to the Word of God with just a few exceptions of depending on what commentary you're reading, it would be anywhere from there's just one exception to there's two or three exceptions. That's out of 176 verses. So you can see that there's a vast majority of this very long psalm that deals with the Word of God. Now, Probably one of the best commentaries I've read on the Psalms is by James Montgomery Boyce. And Boyce, in his commentary, he points to someone else as having the best commentary. A German theologian of the 19th century, a Franz, Franz, actually, uh, Dielich. And Franz Dielich said of, of the 119th Psalm, I quote, Here we have set forth in inexhaustible fullness what the word of God is to a man and how a man is to behave himself in relation to it. The focus on scripture. And then Boyce goes on to quote another commentator who points out that throughout this psalm, the 119th, the law is sought for the very purpose of being kept, not for the sake of of attaining a theoretical knowledge of it. That the purpose of this psalm is to teach us how to live, is what this theologian is saying. Not to give us knowledge for knowledge's own sake of God's word. So in this very long psalm, 
It's broken up into stanzas, as you may or may not know. It follows the Hebrew alphabet, and it's an acrostic psalm, which I'm not going to go into a lot of detail for the sake of time, but that, that just makes it even more marvelous, more difficult to write and to, to imagine someone writing it. But the, the 14th stanza, verses 105 to 112, could be considered, I would say, the psalm of the wise virgins. I think this stanza tells us in a very great way what the wise virgin is. So, if you haven't turned there already, turn to the 119th Psalm and to verse 105, and I'm going to read verses 105 through 112. That's the 14th stanza of this psalm. And it starts off with a passage that I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. The psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. The final point that I want to make this evening is by this we see other things clearly by the light of God's word. And this is what the psalmist is writing about, that that God's word brings other things to light for us. And he lists seven things that are clarified by the light of God's word in this psalm. The first one in, in verse 105 is the way we should go. So God's word shows the wise how to live our lives. Nothing else provides the illuminating oil we need for our lamps apart from God's word. In verse 106, it's righteous behavior. And this is not about Christ's imputed righteousness. It's about biblical ethics lived out in the lives of the wise. In a dark world where sinners will tell us there is no black and white, there is only gray. But the Bible, brothers and sisters, is not gray. The Bible is clear. It lights the moral path of the wise and shows the way to go. Then the next verse, 107, is about suffering. And at the times of our suffering, it is the assurance of God's presence that upholds the wise. God's word is the light at the end of the dark tunnel of suffering. Verse 108 is about right worship. The wise learn God's word and praise him. In our context, that means regular, faithful, and profitable church attendance is a hallmark of the wise. In verse 109, 
It's the dangers of this life. The wise realize that danger is not only physical, it's spiritual. The psalmist is confessing here that the far greater danger would be abandoning God's word and beginning to live a purely secular life, to walk away from God's word, to give it up. The Bible clarifies the nature of the danger to the wise and shows where the true peril lies in our lives. Verse 110, excuse me, verse 110 is illumination of enemies, the ungodly, the foolish. They despise, they, they hate God and the wise. They will try to separate us, separate the wise from the word of God as the foolish virgins did by their demand that the wise virgins give them their oil. And scripture shows us that it is these, these spiritual battles that, that really matter. And lastly, the seventh thing in, in verse 111 is our true heritage, the believer's true heritage. What is it that the wise are looking forward to? Well, we could say many things, but here's what the psalmist says, and I find this very interesting, because maybe it's a little bit different than what I would have said if you were just to ask me. The psalmist says, this is what I've been talking about all along, is, is our heritage. It's God's word. The psalmist is saying, God's word is our heritage. And all that the wise desire, they already possess in God's word. Everything in this world will pass away. Jesus tells us that in, in, in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's nothing we possess that we will retain for eternity, but the Lord's word will never leave us. And lastly, the concluding verse of, of this stanza Verse 112, the psalmist says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Finally, by each of these things, these seven things that we read in these verses, the wise know that they will be preserved to the very end of their earthly life and into life everlasting. And back to our parable. Matthew 25, verse 10, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Think about this. The marriage supper of the lamb is prepared, in this case, for the wise virgins. Now, you know parables and allegories. They, ch they change um, the allegorical representation of the thing the person is talking or teaching about, right? At times, we have the allegory of the church being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom very closely to what we're seeing here. But it, it doesn't quite work in what Jesus is teaching to use that allegory because he's saying, listen, not everybody there is wise. They're foolish it, so you, he's not marrying multiple brides. You can't have one bride that's half foolish and half wise. So we're talking about the virgin attendance um, being the symbol for the church. So the marriage supper is only prepared for the wise ones amongst this group. 
And they are given, they're the ones who are given the spotless white linen robes to wear that we read about in Revelation. This is, this is the purity that the, that the Lord brings to us. He takes us, you know, dirty, wretched sinners that we are and makes us pure and gives us robes of royalty. And the door of the master's house, which of course is heaven, is open to admit these wise virgins. This is their reward. During that time of waiting for the bridegroom, they kept watch. They remained prepared. And at midnight, when the cry came, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Only these five who were wise were ready. They had not been distracted by other things. They had not put their self-interest ahead of their love for the bridegroom. They had persevered to the very end. So this parable teaches a hard point, that not everyone called to the wedding of the bridegroom will actually share in it. On the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day, a dividing, a schism, if you will, will run through the visible church according to the Lord's teaching here. There will be a separation of the elect from those who are called. And the Lord said when speaking of this wedding feast earlier in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, he says these very words, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is also the Lord Jesus' point in this parable. It's not just the lamp that matters, but the oil. It's not just being called by the gospel that matters, but the obedience to the gospel. It's not just membership in the visible church that matters, but the justification and sanctification necessary to become part of the body of Christ. As I said this morning, the parable of the ten virgins connects Jesus' teaching emphasis on the entire Olivet Discourse, on that sixth mountain, and our tasks between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return out of heaven. And on watching, as we saw in the parable's final command, verse 13, and watching, watching does not mean that we need to worry that we might miss Christ's return. I hope you see now that this is not what the watching is about. Rather, what is commanded in watching is obedience to Christ, desired above all other things in our life. That should be what we strive for at all times. And by that, we are made ready. Without constant and undivided obedience, we are not ready. We are not prepared. The, the foolish virgins could not get the oil they needed when they were told the bridegroom is here. My plainclothes partner, if those bad guys that lived in that home opened fire on us, he would not have been able to get to his, his firearm. He was not prepared. He was not ready. This, this is an ongoing thing. It cannot be done at the last moment. That, that's my point. It's not something that we can put off. It cannot be put off. That is why drowsiness and sleeping that we see in this parable is part of the wise virgin's life. Because it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter whether they're sleepy. It doesn't matter whether they're awake because they're always ready. Whether it's noon or midnight, they're ready. So the time of Christ's return is completely immaterial to us. It is. We look forward to it, but that's not the main thing. Just as it was not the main thing for the wise virgins because they were always obedient to the will of the Father, day in and day out. And that's just as it should be for us. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for what you reveal to us. We give thanks that you love us enough that you will warn us about the folly that we can easily fall into, into this life. Father, I pray that we not feel proud of ourselves, that we not feel that we are um, better than others because we are prepared. We know that you are the one that prepares us, Father. Our desire, and may it grow more and more in each of us, Father, is to be obedient at all times to your commands, that we may respond as you would have us respond, and that we respond you know, in love, Father, as you would have us. Father, we give thanks again for this day. We pray for those who uh, were not able to be amongst us. We pray for those who chose not to be here because of other things that they felt were more worthy of their time. Father, we know that there is nothing that is more worthy than worshiping you and hearing your word. And we give thanks for that. Father, bless this time of communion as we approach the Lord's table. And bless and keep safe your beloved, my brothers and sisters, as they go forth tonight to their homes and keep them in this week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.